This is the 34th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society of Haematology. This podcast covers the guideline of mechanical heart valve anticoagulation in pregnancy. This podcast has been recorded over Zoom and we apologise for any loss in sound quality that may occur. I'm Dr. Will Lester, I'm a haematology consultant. I've had a career-long interest in obstetric haematology and have the good fortune to work in a, at least part of the time, in a tertiary referral specialist women's hospital. And I can say over the years that I've dealt with a number of, of difficult, uh, challenging situations, but I would say that certainly managing anticoagulation in pregnancy for individuals with mechanical heart valves is is pretty much top of the list in terms of, of, of risk and, and attention to detail. So I think this is a really, really important guideline. The official full title of the guideline is the British Society for Haematology Guideline for Anticoagulant Management of Pregnant Individuals with Mechanical Heart Valves. I'm going to break up this podcast into three subject matters. First, I'm going to talk about the why. Why did we write it? I've already given a, a clue as to, as to the why. Before moving on to talking about some of the contents of the guideline, and then just a little bit about, about the initial reaction to the guideline. So firstly, in terms of the, the, the reason for doing it, um, it's such a high-risk area, as I mentioned, and we can say from a UK survey, the UCOS survey, done not that long ago, that the chance of, of someone who's pregnant with a mechanical heart valve getting through pregnancy and postpartum with no maternal or fetal complications is about one in four. That means three in every four uh, individuals are basically getting complications, uh, be that the, the, the most feared complication, mechanical heart valve thrombosis, or major hemorrhage, or fetal harm, possibly from anticoagulation, possibly for, for other reasons. So, so, so the fact that it's such a high-risk area, and that's been highlighted in terms of UK practice, means that we really, really need to be, to be looking at whatever evidence is out there, and, and to look really to see if we can actually improve outcomes. Um, it, it's not really, I'm not going to call this guideline a pearl, but every, every oyster needs its grain of sand in order to make its pearl. And I, and I think the grain of sand that really precipitated things was some nice guidance that was released several years ago. And it very much focused on the peripartum management. And, and a lot of people focus on that, but, but actually I think that unfortunately misses the big issue. The big issue, the big issues to address are that there's, a, there's 50% of all the complications in terms of mechanical heart valve in the first trimester. And, and so we need to be focusing on that type of area rather than just focusing on the peripartum period. There were other issues with the NICE guidance as well to do with very, very aggressive anticoagulation. And we know that, that the risk of, of major hemorrhage post-delivery for, for these individuals is about 20%. So, so over, overly aggressive anticoagulation in the peripartum period is probably counterproductive because you're, you're increasing the risk of hemorrhage and anyone who hemorrhages has to have their anticoagulation stopped. So the NICE guidance was certainly certainly a grain of sand to get, get us going. I was very lucky to have a writing group to work with who were very much multidisciplinary, representing all the different relevant specialties, 
cardiac, obstetric medicine, uh, midwifery, um, anaesthetics. It, it really was a pleasure to work with them. Um, and so that's a bit about the, of the origins of the guideline. I'm going to move on now to talk about some of the contents because this is really important. And we really wanted to address this first trimester issue. If, if, you, if you look through the data, and, I, and what we couldn't do with this guideline is look at randomized controlled trials. We couldn't look at high quality evidence. So we had to look at case series. And we also had to look at what happens outside of pregnancy. Are there lessons that we've learned outside of pregnancy which we can apply in pregnancy? And so in terms of the first trimester, what was clear from that, the UCOS, the UK study that showed that the, the really um, the, the one in four positive outcomes, um, what, that, what that told us um, was that often the dose, the dose of heparin, which is used initially um, for pregnant individuals who are obviously on warfarin when they get pregnant as a rule, but then generally will we'll transition over to, to low molecular heparin to avoid that, that one in 20 risk of, of, a, of a fetopathy, of an embryopathy from the warfarin. So it's generally quite common practice for a lot of individuals to switch. But what, what, what we've learned from the UCOS study is that that starting dose is often a standard therapeutic starting dose. And in order to achieve the types of intensity of anticoagulation that we think we need to achieve, you really need to start with a much bigger dose. We think one of the reasons for the high rate of first trimester mechanical valve thrombosis is the under anticoagulation in that very early period. And it is partly a conjecture, but, but we think that it's much better to learn from our mistakes and to, instead of starting at a standard dose and then titrating up, to go for a decent dose. And so the guideline gives guidance on, depends on what type of low molecular weapon you use as to, as to what your starting dose should be. Um, we had to address other issues as well, one being the use of aspirin. Now we know that aspirin use outside of pregnancy in the context of adding it to warfarin for mechanical heart valve thromboprophylaxis actually improves efficacy um, in terms of reducing valve thrombosis, but the, at the cost of slightly higher hemorrhage rates. But we felt that the risk of mechanical valve thrombosis for those who happened to continue heparin was so very high that we could justify adding in aspirin as well for, for thromboprophylaxis. Um, saying that, we couldn't give a really strong evidence base for that. I'm going to backpedal slightly because if you look at our practice in the UK compared to perhaps in, in some other countries, we do use a lot less warfarin. Now, if you were to say to me and anyone who wrote this guideline, what is the best anticoagulant for an individual with mechanical heart valves um, to stop them getting valve thrombosis in pregnancy? The answer is going to be a vitamin K antagonist. It's going to be warfarin. That is the superior anticoagulant. But there is this trade-off which requires um, a, a careful thought and discussion regarding the potential harm to the fetus. We know that I've mentioned the embryopathy, but we know even after the first trimester, warfarin does cross the placenta, the, 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 the fetus will be anticoagulated, there is some risk to the fetus of hemorrhage. That after careful counselling, it, it's just we just have to accept that many individuals will take risk to themselves over risk to their to their fetus. And, and so we, we have to give 
uh, the information we have, we have to counsel. Um, but ultimately, I would have to say that UK practice often is to use heparin throughout the pregnancy. We have recommended warfarin, um, and we have the caveat that some historical uh, publications suggest that warfarin is safe if the dose is less than five milligrams. We do challenge that, actually. Um, I think that VKs uh, have a risk at whatever dose, and I think the, the, the evidence does support that. But we have to acknowledge that it is common practice for, for, for a choice to be made um, after the counselling by the pregnant person themselves to, um, to use heparin, and that's to avoid that, that risk to the fetus. And so if, we, if, if that is the decision, and that's, we recommend that that's done, with um, a multidisciplinary team, we recommend really great counselling before pregnancy, ideally. We even recommend that, um, that the choice of a mechanical valve for a person of childbearing age should be made with a view to the potential of pregnancy. Um, but after that counselling, if a decision is made to use heparin, what we've tried to do in the guideline is to give recommendations on how to optimise heparin treatment. I've mentioned aspirin. I think another thing I've mentioned is the the high initiate initiation dose. The next sticky subject is about uh, anticoagulant monitoring. If it's warfarin, it's relatively straightforward. We just recommend regular INR testing. But if it is low molecular heparin, we had to address the issue of, do we give more than twice daily? And do we use trough antitene measurements versus peak? Uh, and it's a tricky area, again, not very evidence-based, but we had to make recommendations based on, on just practical the practical, pragmatic issues regarding compliance. We know that people struggle to comply with heparin injections. They can be uncomfortable. They sting. We had to balance the theoretical benefit of, of giving more than twice daily heparin against the potential consequences on adherence and also the lack of evidence to support more than twice daily dosing. So we have come down on twice daily dosing. Regarding the trough versus peak, um, the, the, the data on, on, on trying to achieve high trough levels is not based on any particular strong evidence base. Um, we do address that in the guideline. We also have to acknowledge that it would be very difficult for somebody to, to come into hospital, have a trough level, get given a dose of heparin, and then await uh, for their peak level three to four hours later. That is wiping out the whole day for somebody. Um, we have to acknowledge that, that often that, that that's too much to ask of many individuals who ha have other commitments and, and, and often have to be encouraged to, to attend anyway for even, even the peak level alone. We also have to acknowledge that, that in order to achieve a high trough, we'd have to be thinking about three times a day dosing. And again, that goes back to the pragmatics and the tolerability and the, and the, and the lack of strong evidence. But we have made a call. I mean, I, I think this is an area that does need more research. And I think if research comes out to show that one regime is, is superior to another, then clearly we'll amend the guidelines. But for the time being, we're saying twice daily dosing, start high and go for a very high peak antitonate level. We're talking about 1 to 1.4. And we know that if you do do that, then you will in many cases achieve a reasonable trough level. So, so it's with a mind to, to the peak and the trough that we make that recommendation. Um, so I, I think that, that probably summarises some of the really key 
um, aspects of the guideline. And obviously, there are many, many other recommendations that we have made. Um, and we've given some very practical information about what to do around a potential miscarriage, potential termination of pregnancy, and very detailed options around the peripartum period in terms of pausing anticoagulation appropriately, in terms of restarting. When we talk about restarting post-delivery, in order to try and reduce that very high hemorrhage rate that we saw in the UCOS study, that we've recommended a gradual increment in anticoagulation. Um, so, so we feel that we've tried to address various aspects in the pregnancy journey, um, try to be pragmatic. And obviously what we hope is that is that we can improve outcomes um, because really we do need to, to, to be to be monitoring this and, and, and reacting to any new evidence that's available. So I've, I've, I've skipped over much of the, the heavy contents of the guideline, but I hope I've given a nice summary. Finally, just to address maybe some of the early feedback that we have had from the guideline, I think it's been generally positive. I think people like the emphasis on starting heparin doses high, trying to address this first trimester issue um, about the pragmatics around, around monitoring in the peripartum period. One of the issues that has cropped up is actually the use of inclusive language in the guideline. I think it's a, very, it's a very controversial area. It's something that came out in the review process. So we have used the term uh, pregnant individuals um, over using the term women. And, and that has created some, some criticism, which you know, is understandable. I think the worry is that the, that the language may in some way be, be confusing. We have addressed a letter to, to the editor of the journal I think we feel that it's quite reasonable to use the term individuals here. You know, there's a big emphasis on this in this guideline on um, on individualizing care, on, on the need for the MDT, in, uh, to be, but but in the need for decision making to be made um, to get together collaboratively with each person. And so, I think our feeling is that we're, we're reasonably happy with that inclusive language, although. I think it is something that I think the British Society of Hematology, um, the guidelines group, you know, do need to address. You know, language constantly evolves, and I think we we want to to be appropriate with our language without causing any any uh, confusion or mistakes. So, so that's just a little bit of the the early feedback, really, more about the language that we've used rather than about the necessarily the medical content. But I think it's watch this space. I think it's going to be an interesting debate, perhaps something for next year's. British Society of Hematology meeting. So in conclusion, I think, I, I really hope that this guideline is going to be helpful. I think we try and address some of the areas where, where there isn't a great evidence base at all. We, we, we tried to, to look at learnings from previous case series. We've tried to be pragmatic. We have tried to apply learnings from outside of pregnancy. I think there's a there's always a chance that some of these recommendations will change as evidence become becomes available, but I really do hope that by by producing this very comprehensive and multidisciplinary guidance that we will reduce the risk of harm to individuals with mechanical heart valves in pregnancy. I've I've seen enough adverse events now to know that 
there are you know there are little lessons that we that have been learned and i think we need to apply them and i think this guideline has has done that to some extent um i i i mean i i certainly welcome you know more discussions on the use of inclusive language as well it's a bit of a side issue i guess outside the content of the guideline but it's it's interesting nonetheless i'd really like to thank any of you are listening to this for listening I, I really you know i really hope that that you get a chance to have a good read through the guideline um and certainly you know give me any feedback be it positive or negative and i'd really like to invite uh, any listeners to visit um, bsh.org.uk that's b hyphen s hyphen h full stop o-r-g full stop uk to listen to more exciting podcasts from the i don't know if that means more exciting than this one or just other exciting podcasts from the British Society for Hematology about all sorts of various important guidelines. Thank you.